Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Osiris. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. Kathleen Edwards' story is pretty fascinating to me. The way that over the last two decades, she's achieved these incredible successes, done all this really cool stuff. I don't want to put words in her mouth, but she seems to have gotten beaten down by the music industry and turned her back on it, opened a coffee shop at her in her hometown, dropped out for the better part of a decade, and then now she has returned to music and found, you know, as she describes it, you know, a new a new love for this thing that she does. It's really cool. I mean, this is a hard job. And I really appreciate it when the um, trickier, you know, as I like to say in these interviews, the internal stuff gets brought to light. You know, when we when we focus on not just how difficult it is to travel from, you know, Baltimore to Indianapolis in a 15-passenger van, like that that's obvious. These things are uncomfortable and annoying and crummy. It's the the stuff you don't see. You know, it's the it's the daily um indignities. It's the it's the the mental hurdles that sometimes you can't clear, right? So to hear Kathleen describe her journey into music, back out of music, and back into music again, I think is so great and so useful and and beautiful in its way. I think the world of her, I think her music is fantastic. I think she's an incredible performer. And I'm really grateful that she has shared her story with me on this the newest Wheels Off. Please welcome Kathleen Edwards. Welcome to Wheels Off. Kathleen Edwards, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I'm good. I'm really good. I can't believe this is the first time you and I have ever had a chance to actually hang it's or see each other. Yeah. I think maybe we're the same person and it just never happened. <laughs> we could be in the same place. That makes sense. That makes sense. That's how it has felt, you know, like you were always walking out the door when I was walking in. 
Um, for the edification of the listening audience, where are you joining us from? I am in the uh, the state of Florida, as you can see by the sunshine coming in. Uh, I'm not in, but yeah, it's it's sunny in Canada this time of year too. But uh, I'm in Florida right now. But I, I split my time between the states and Canada. So oh, that's that's very cool. Um, yeah. God, I'm so glad to have you back with us in the cesspool that is the music industry. It's it's great. It's been a few years now, but I haven't. Yeah, I just I, I I've always thought the the world of you, and um, it, even when you stepped away, I was like, "Fuck, she is doing it right." So smart. Well, I didn't think I was doing it right, which is why I quit. You know, quite abruptly, I thought I was getting it all wrong. So, but you mm. know, perspective and time off is undervalued, as we all know. And uh, yeah, I definitely. I, I I definitely needed some big perspective time because even the stuff that's weird and crappy that flies by you and you don't have time to process is the stuff that you also, I think you foundationally build every future happy experience on top of. And if you don't have time to sort of make peace with the good and the bad, then, then nothing's good in the future. Uh, see already you get right to it i love that um what are you working on right now and how does it light you up uh i am working well so i put out a record in 2020 which just sucked it was a really shitty time to put out a record especially when i had that record is great the record doesn't suck the record is oh no great but yeah putting it up go ahead sorry i interrupted you no no it's okay but you know i like i thought that would be my sort of like coming back and feeling triumphant and happy and celebratory about putting out an album again. And then that just was a really tough time. So, uh, you know, I only started playing it for people six months ago, really eight months ago. And that's been really joyful and wonderful, but it feels a little bit like, you know, like you stubbed your toe and then your brain's only just realizing that that really hurt. And uh, it's a little bit of a delayed reaction, but it's great. And so, you know, my plan is to sort of play a few more shows and then hopefully figure out if I'd like to make another record. I wonder about this because well, you've already brought up the idea of perspective, but you have one that's different from a lot of people that I talk to. Um, I remember hearing the the single off that 2020 album. I was driving through Long Island, of all things, on the way to a dumb, uh, not a dumb gig, a gig at the Talk House. Stupid gig. <clears throat> and that came on WEHM. And um, and I I had to pull over because it was it was so good. It made me so happy that and um, I because I, I didn't have your information. I just went on Twitter and pulled you up and just sent you a note saying, like, this is so great. I'm so blown away and proud of you. But it must have felt frustrating to you because I think you must have known that what you did was really great. But then, you know, like so many of us, you put it out into the void and got no reaction. I mean, not none, certainly. No, no, I know. Yeah, but yeah. Um, do you get it now? Do, do, do you feel it that that was a really great record and and you must get some love from it? I right. do. I, I think I think we naturally, as musicians, in the immediate period of time after we le- release a record, we feel like that's our best work. And so, you know, will I feel that way in 10 years? I don't know. I'll probably like what I'm doing most recently the most. But um, 
but I feel really good about the record. It came from a really liberated place. Like I, I was, I was not bound by any sort of strange, you know, devil or angel sitting on my shoulder, second guessing myself about in, in the context of my previous work. I just was not worried about that. And that's kind of the, almost like the idea of making your first record, that dream scenario where you don't know what you're doing and you have no context for the work. You're just doing what feels right. And that was a great, I mean, no, I don't know a lot of people who get to feel like they make their first record again. And I, I kind of felt like it did. I think when you talk about those uh, devils on the shoulder, I wonder how much of that is um, the idea of trying to do what you think your audience wants or worse, trying to do what you think like a record label or the, the mm. industry wants. Was that all, was mm. that an issue? I mean, how is it not, but how was that? Of course it is. Of course it is. And you also want people, you know, we want people to like us. I mean, that is sort of the foundational necessity of, of what we do. And so the idea that we wouldn't naturally go, Oh, our most sort of well-received song in our last record or in our lifetime was this. Well, you know, you naturally also want to have that experience. So it's hard to not dip your toe into overthinking what is the best, what's most accessible for me to play to the most amount of people or to be heard by the most amount of people. I, I just feel really lucky that that wasn't something I was burdened by this time around, but it's, but it's, also a good, it's also an interesting um, skill. Like I once tried to make a record with Brian Adams. He and I, uh, I toured, he'd asked me to open for him um, in like 2005, six, seven, somewhere around there. And we ended up really hitting it off. And he's a wonderfully generous, fun workaholic. Like he is an incredibly hardworking guy. And we decided to maybe try and make a record together sort of in the vein of Alison Krauss slash Robert Plant, because we had this great connection. We both sort of had an, a sort of an acoustic guitar rooted songbook, and we got along well and we had fun and, uh, and it, the record didn't work out. But one of the interesting learning experiences of working with him was being in the studio one day and him sort of turning to the people who were in the studio working and tracking various musicians and producer saying, you know, do you want this song to be uh, approach this song in, in direction one, which feels like sort of a rootsy sort of understated version, or do you want it to be version two where you imagine yourself playing this to 30,000 people? And it's a song that will be loved and, you know, sung along to by 30,000 people. And I was like, Ooh, that is certainly I. That is certainly not the barometer by which I do any of my work, maybe to my own detriment. But what an interesting exercise that I would have never contemplated. I wonder because it comes up a lot in these conversations: the idea of calculation as art killer, and and what he, the way you present it you know as you describe him saying it it sounds sweet like it doesn't sound gross right but but that idea that you could um consciously make the decision to to do something specifically to be a giant smash hit that i mean is that a thing can one do that well i think it comes from a place of uh for him I would say respectfully, I think that's all he's ever known. 
because yeah. his first record, well, you know, obviously he started out at, you know, down here and he worked his way up, but in a very short period of time, he had number one hits on the radio. And I think that the context of him being comfortable with making hits and it being really, a um, it being persistent throughout his whole career is very different than someone like me who goes, well, I do this and I've made records that don't have radio hits and I'm still very pleased with my body of work. Uh, those are two very different perspectives. Having said that, even just this week, I remember saying to my husband uh, that I still hadn't had, I still have not had my song. Like I still have not had a song that just broke broke my career open in sort of the Nathaniel Rateliff way or maybe in the Lumineers way or in a Brandy Carlisle way or Belinda Carlisle way. I don't know. Like, I just have not had like a big song that everyone's like, oh, you're, I know your song X. So, so, you know, to, I would be disingenuous if I didn't know that that is also one of the wonderful possibilities of making music is the idea that you have a song that blows up and it's the one song that everyone knows. There's that great story of Nick Lowe going out in his bathrobe to his mailbox one day, not having realized that they had used his a cover of his song, uh, Peace, Love and Understanding, on the soundtrack to The Bodyguard and opening oh his God. mailbox to find a check from BMG for like a million dollars. So I, I wish... <laughs> I wish how that did he miss? How did he not know he was on the bodyguard? I mean, that's like that was. There, is there a movie that was not in his neighbor? Like, how did he not know that? That's crazy. I I call BS on that. It's, I you know. Yeah, it's apocryphal. Yeah. It's one of those stories they tell so that people like us would just keep going. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm still waiting for Kevin Costner to cast me in his next, you know, Americana biopic. Um. Do, do you remember when it all clicked for you that this was going to be it, that you were going to do music for your life? Um, was there an epiphany moment when you were a kid? Mm, I think so. Uh, I always grew up playing music and I played classical violin. My mom was a music teacher and a pianist and um, I got, you know, sort of enrolled in music at a very young age. And so a large part of my, you know, five to 12 years old was practicing with quite a lot of discipline, you know, everything from an hour of practicing a day, a weekly lesson, playing in a youth orchestra, group this, going to a theory lesson. So there was a lot of structure and discipline in my young life. But then I went to summer camp and I learned how to sing songs by the fire, like, and then I learned Joni songs and Dylan songs. And, uh, and it was in those teenage years that I was sort of un undone by that drive and that sort of like intuitive draw that was persistent and unrelenting. And it was actually a camp counselor who said to me, cause I was always the kid in, on the canoe trip who was brought the guitar and sang songs all day and night. And he said, you know, you could play, you could write songs for a living. You could you could write songs and play songs for a living. And it was like, my mother probably like would have never sent me back to camp if she'd known that I was being influenced so terribly. Um, I'm just joking. She's, but you know, she, I remember her saying to me one day, uh, you know, I might've been 14, 
13, 14, 15. And she said, and I never said like, I want to play songs. I want to play on stage and I want to write this stuff and I want to do that. I think she knew that because I had a really foundationally sort of intuitive draw to music, she, and she had also, you know, become a professional musician. Um, she did give me the making music as you're living is an incredibly difficult uh, and, and sort of enduring a choice. And one thing I remember her saying is, you know, your violin teacher, who's a world-class violinist who plays in this national orchestra, he still has to take students on the side, you know, to pay for his life and for his family. And, and I, that was a really good, that was an incredibly, uh, it was a lasting conversation because I knew that if I were to think about pursuing music instead of going to school or have any other interests, which just was not even in the conversation, but I knew I would have to bust my ass and that, and that really this is not a, something you do to make a lot of money. Do you Sorry, feel that like was a very long answer. That's what I want. That's actually what I'm hoping for. Do, um, do you feel like there was a time when, when I, I'm, this is sort of asked and answered, I think, when people did think that there was a, uh, there was a lottery ticket element to music, like a brass ring with offered a lot mm -hmm. of money? Yeah. I mean, I, I remember once sitting down for my first music industry dinner where people were thinking of signing me and it was in Toronto I just gotten my first manager and I was like, I'm going to get a hundred thousand dollars or I'm walking like I didn't need money. And, you know, like, you know, I was living in the dreamland. Like that's just, that just wasn't, you know, I'm not Celine Dion. Like Celine Dion probably didn't get a fucking hundred thousand dollars when she walked into the, her first record company dinner. But, um, but yeah, like, of course, I think there is that, that strange false narrative that, that, you know, you get signed and someone just hands you this check and then everything's golden, baby. Yeah, it's funny. I wonder if that, and I think that it isn't, but like kids now, the kids now, I don't think they are thinking of music as that easy of a path. I no, mean, well, surely they are people who have invested time and energy uploading their music song by song as they make it onto streaming platforms that must be a pretty sort of substantial reality check. I would think. Yeah. I hope because I mean, I feel a bit sad about all that stuff. Like I'm worried that there's a generation of musicians who are never going to assemble a body of work and it's just going to be singular, you know, things that, that don't require them to necessarily spend a year or two of their time and energy creating and cultivating in a, in a project. And also the fact that we've created a generation of creative uh, content makers, creatives who think that um, that work is to be given away and isn't worth anything. And that's, that really upsets me and bothers me. I remember a Bowie interview in around 2001 or so when they were seeing the writing on the wall with the music industry's collapse. And they asked him if um, if he thought that kids would stop making music. And he said, no, the good thing about this is that the only people making music are the kids who have no choice. Yeah. 
That's true. That's interesting. It's sad, I mean, sad and true. I have a couple of teenagers myself, and yeah, they were never that drawn to it. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> um, so for you, I wonder, because you, you opened up this discussion just now talking about, you know, wrestling with the the tricky realities of this life, um, a life as an artist, a life as a musician, and you stepped away from it. And I, and I wonder for you, what have you figured out when it comes to dealing with those negative self-destructive inner voices, the, the obstacles we you know build up inside of ourselves to keep ourselves from making art, to make ourselves unhappy while we're doing it? What have you figured out as a way of pushing through that? Well, instead of that pursuit of the, the sort of chasing the carrot mentality, where it was, you know, always reaching for something more that I had not yet gotten to. When I ran my coffee shop, um, when I opened the doors, my coffee shop, you know, I was the person saying hello to everyone who walked in the door. And that a lot of time included people who, uh, recognized me or knew maybe one of my songs or maybe knew my entire catalog, like whatever it was. And in a very normalized environment, I got to meet people for whom my music meant something. And even if it was just a song or if it was 10 years ago, and I was finally able to um, feel incredibly moved and grateful and fulfilled by that. And so I remember thinking to myself, like I did more in my life before I was 30 than many people do their whole lives. And that I was always thinking that I hadn't done enough when really I had done an incredible amount. And that, that would be enough to last me my whole life if I never made music or stood on a stage again. And, and so I, yeah, that, I think that shifted my my feelings about this work now, you know, whereas before I was like, why can't that door be open? And why can't that door be open yet? Um, or why don't I get to open for this person? Or why am I not selling more tickets than that person? Now I, I really feel incredibly um, in, maybe empowered or incredibly grateful and fulfilled by looking out and seeing somebody sing along to a, to a song that I put out 15 years ago that that's enough for me now. And, and, and I'm so glad because it really gives me, um, some kind of armor that I'm not worried about what people think of me today. I've already done good work. And so anything about that is just icing on the cake. I love the way you address a thing that a lot of people, including myself, tend to um, ignore or sweep under the rug the idea of envy. You know, I think it's something that um, that artists grapple with and maybe everyone in every walk of life. But, I, you know, I know I know artists. I, I am an artist and I do wrestle a lot with why do they get that and I don't get this. And I have people in my life every year when the Grammys come on, they say you deserve whatever to be on the Grammys. You deserve um, that. That idea seems like it can be incredibly self-destructive. And I mean, I wonder when you kind of stepped away for a, a bit and got the perspective you got, did it um, take some of that pressure off of beating yourself up for not getting all the glory, money? Yeah, I think you, the word envy, 
um, has really been something that I finally see as this pervasive, um, you know, it kind of the finger pointing and the shame making that we participate in uh, is all really rooted in envy, I think. And we just are in denial of it. Um, and ideas that people shouldn't strive to be successful or that once there's a certain amount of successful, that if they don't give it back to everyone else, then they're jerks or uh, envy is an incredibly toxic uh, thing happening. I think in uh, maybe it always has, I'm far more aware of it now that I'm older and have a better sense of that. I don't need to apologize for um, enjoying life the way that makes sense to me and that uh, I know in my heart that I am a good person and that I treat people well and that I care about others. And so if somebody wants to point a finger at, and judge me for, you know, touring because I have a pickup truck and they think I'm killing the planet or that they don't like that I'm in Florida or playing a show in Texas because they have a, they have a political issue with that. Uh, all that stuff is really just rooted, I think, in people feeling insecure about what they're doing in their lives and what, you know, what, what they're in control of for themselves. And envy is really a big part of that. Um, and uh, I feel like, uh, you know, we're always having to sort of step back and take a deep breath and realign our, all the progress we make. Sometimes we fall back a little bit and, um, and, you know, the music industry is a tough go. There's no, there's no justice in it. And, uh, and sometimes it's very just, um, sometimes it gives you a, this one great day that you ride on for a year afterwards. And sometimes you have a bad year and it makes you think you're going to quit. But maybe that's just like everyone, you know, maybe us musicians aren't so special after all. <laughs> no, no, don't tell them. So when we when we are starting out, it's part of it is that healthy competition between you and your friend's band or you, you know, but or even maybe between bandmates who can write a better song or you know, uh, between the the scene in, in Toronto or Dallas or whatever, like that healthy competition, the hunger of each individual artist, like that, <clears throat> that all seems really healthy to me. Mm -hmm. But but I then, it, but then at some point, um, it hardens into this thing, the, this envy, like, are, are they sides of a coin? Or are they sides of a line in the sand? Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. I don't know. Like, are you still hungry, um, for instance? Do you still feel hungry? Oh, God, hungry? yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. I, I'm still writing people that I want to work with saying, like, I have ambitions that far exceed where I've made it in my career so far. There's no question I have a renewed enthusiasm. And I think competition or feeling competitive. Uh, for me, I think I think I'm more competitive with myself than I am. Like, I don't that comparative thing isn't necessarily, but you know, sometimes we don't know what the other side of, like you said, the other side of the coin looks like until we, we compare ourselves to others. Um, but yeah, no, I still have a super healthy relationship with my ambition. I think I just, you know, I've, 
I've had a lot of, I mean, like all of us, I mean, we go through life and as we put ourselves out there, sometimes we have expectations or um, ambitions that fall short and we have disappointments. Our, what we do, not just to pay our, for, our li- for our lives or for our families or for whatever, what we do is really not normal as far as a status quo goes, like there are not a lot of people who make money for standing on stage and expressing very intimate and vulnerable feelings. And, uh, it's a choice to do that, but, but that's a really unique thing. And, um, and so it's really worthy of, uh, Whenever I think about any of us doing that, I, I feel incredibly, um, I feel like there's an understanding amongst all of us that know that that's an incredibly brave thing to do. Even when there's, even when it's disappointing, like you get up on stage and there's only 10 people and you thought there'd be a hundred, you know, those are real disappointments and, and, and they're legitimate. It, it doesn't, it's disappointing in the moment, but I always, I've recently been able to turn that feeling into something like find the one thing that was really great. That sounds like a grade four teacher. We got to find the one thing that's really positive today, (laughs) but it's true. Like, um, I have a better, I have a much better capacity to put things in context and to, walk myself out of a dark thought. TM, (laughs) K-E-T-M, check. (laughs) You reminded me of the the musician that walks out on stage to a smaller than expected audience and then proceeds to take their disappointment out on those people that showed up. Um, Right? Like they're they're angry at the thousand people that didn't show up, so they take it out on the... (laughs) The 50 people that did show up. That seems misguided. Shall we now go to the podcast part where we <laughs> list the people that we know have done that? <laughs> well, I heard this one time. Uh, the world will hold them all accountable or it won't. <laughs> They'll all get Grammys. Um, <laughs> dark road. Kathleen, this is so great. I really appreciate this. I really, it's funny. I feel like, um, I feel like I knew you already. I've been a fan for a long time, but I just, I feel like um, we come from a similar place and the way that you are able to lay stuff out in the, in a way that sounds really logical and, and super thoughtful. I, I really appreciate that because some of this stuff is hard. It's hard to wrap your mind around one, but it's also, sometimes it's hard to say it because people think that when you, um, talk about your ambition or, you, or when you talk about envy or when you talk about the, you know, what pushes you to step away, like that, that stuff can be really tricky. And then I really appreciate you being so honest about it, not just in the last half hour, but in general, I think it's fucking great. And the world needs more of that. I wonder though, if you wouldn't mind trying to distill some of this wisdom into a little, nugget where if you were to run into a 21 year old version of Kathleen Edwards in today's world, what advice might you give 21 year old you? Oh my God, that's really hard. 
you know, maybe I should think about that more, like, you know, after this and think about that more at different times of my life. Cause what would I, I think I would probably give the same advice that I'm giving, uh, I've been playing some shows and I meet quite a lot of young women who approach me and say hi and that they're starting their own thing and they tell me their name or their band or, and they give me music to listen to or uh, tell me how I can find them. And they don't ask. And I feel a little bit presum. I feel like a bit of an asshole for doing this, but I, uh, I usually am, uh, I feel uh, compelled to give them some advice um, which is very, I realize, incredibly um, egotistical of myself to say, but I, the advice is usually you're playing the long game. This is, this is a long haul. You are on a long haul drive and doing this will have so many ups and downs. And if you can remember that that's okay that there'll be really as many bad days as there are good days or as many disappointments as there are uh, achievements that feel incredibly rewarding, then you'll make it um, because it is, it's a, it's a long haul. And my first record came out um, in 2003 and I, you know, I'd made demos and I had toured and done lots of like, you know, playing for free. And I continued obviously to do many of those things, but the day my record came out in America, I was on the Letterman show. It's really hard to keep that momentum going if that's where you start. And I think, I think, you know, there's that old saying about an over, there is no such thing as overnight success. It's, you know, years in the making, but really I think what I'm so incredibly glad is that I can tell someone now this is a long haul. So don't let setbacks that are going to come and go in the first many years when you feel incredibly invigorated and passionate and open and vulnerable to just doing, saying yes to everything, doing everything that there will be, you know, there will be 10 years from now, there will be 20 years from now. And it's, it's really hard to imagine that when you're 21, but it's also hard to imagine, you know, when I played on Letterman, that Letterman would never exist. And now it, it doesn't exist. And that wasn't a nugget, but the nugget is being a creative person and trying to make a living doing it is definitely, it's the long game. And if you can appreciate that the long game has a whole lot of down times, then then you'll be okay. You'll be there for the good times. Yeah. I'll have to work on that. It wasn't great. No, that's, um, that's a really, that's a very I, challenging thing to wrap up. <laughs> I shouldn't have said nugget because what I wanted was just that. I wanted an essay. I wanted to oh, treat I have us. another one. Yes. I have another one. Don't sign anything. <laughs> yes. Don't sign anything. Because everyone will fucking do stuff without a signature on that page, let me tell you. And it leaves your options open when you want to exit. Right. If you want to work with them and they <laughs> want to work with you, you don't need a contract for that. That's right. Yeah. That's and don't be good. flattered. Don't be flattered when people want to work with you. 
you know, like don't get caught up in the thinking that that's your only option. You know, there are, uh, the universe has a multitude of options and sometimes we rush into something like it's, that's that long game thing. You know, patience is so hard. Like, you know, that thing when you make a record and then you have to wait like six months to a year before the single comes out or they print an actual copy to send out to people. You're like, you feel like you, you had this euphoric dream and you made this thing in your dream. And then it's like, it didn't exist when you spend six months to a year, not being able to share it with everyone or not being able to see people react to it. That's a really hard exercise. And I think sometimes it's, it's an incredible, it allows more opportunities to happen for you in your work if it's set up properly, but it's incredibly hard to accept that like other people then will be delaying your project. With the, the living, know. the living in your own mind during those months can be a little rough, right? Yeah. Well, you know that, like how many times you made a record and it's just like, you cannot, you're just bouncing off the walls and you're so excited. Then you're like, yeah, waiting. 21. The answer is 21. Like, was, that 21. The was that the 20. phone? Was that the phone? <laughs> or if you're in a band, you get your guitar player calling you up, second guessing every artistic choice you made when it's too late. <laughs> oh man, that's the worst. That's uh, awful. Guitar players, yeah, am I right? Good. They're the worst. Um, <laughs> They're the loudest. <laughs> This is so great. Thank you so much. I know I'm going to get to see you on the Outlaw Country Cruise and it'll be great. Bring your Dramamine. I will. I actually, I uh, I don't get seasick. I, and let, yeah, I'm good. Oh, I'm good. you just jinxed yourself so hard. Just yeah, maybe, yeah. The, maybe it's been smooth sailing. It's going to be rough waters. You'll be fine. Poseidon's daughter. You'll be great. Ooh, there's Are a we going to do, can we do some song? Can we do some songs together? Can we play on the Outlaw Cruise together? Oh my God. Yes. Well, this is great. Enjoy the sunshine. And um, this is really fun. I love talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all. Cyrus. Hi, I'm Daniela Clark. I'm Barbara Ann Wild. And we are the Honest AF Show. Our podcast is real, honest conversation with our celebrity friends and pros. Covering our anything but average rock and roll lifestyles. All while tackling the hell that is aging and the battle of beauty. Oh yeah, nothing is off the table. The Honest AF Show is available wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 